I apologize for being late because I'm on, on my way here. I just walking along, and there's this like kind of middle-aged lady is in a, in a wheelchair, and like she's surrounded by like a bunch of people, like kind of student-looking people, and she just points out like as I'm walking along, says you. Am I like talking to me? He says, yeah, you. Can you help me? I'm like, oh, of course. What do you need? It's like, can you lift me up? Like, you have to get me. In. She's trying to get into the car from her wheelchair, and uh, basically, like. She's like, all right, so you know, you know, do this with like the wheelchair and build it up. And, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have the uh, the second one. The result piece. Yeah, that should be enough for. Yes. Okay. Anything to drink? Uh, just uh, water for you. Water. water for Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So. Can I have a taxi or just a random car? I don't know, some kind of service car, not a taxi, but not yeah. like an Uber either. Okay. And, but she's, she's like apparently someone with a PhD from one of the nearby universities, and just like, I don't know if she recently this, and her legs are hurting, and she can't move, so I had to like bend in the wheelchair and then like pick her up. She's like, oh no, can you lift me? I'm like, yeah, I can. But I guess she asked me, because all the other people there were like too skinny and scrawny looking, you know? She's like, you're a big man, you, you can lift me up. You lifted someone before? I'm like, of course, all the time. <laughs> So managed to get her in, pull up the wheelchair, get in. So, good deed for the day done. Yes. Thank you. I thought my only good deed for the day was going to be recording this podcast with you, you know? So. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm... But see, that's, that's a very Canadian thing, I think, just ask strangers for help, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I... So you were busy all last week, huh? Pretty busy. Yeah. Pretty busy. Did you record first strike? I I recorded first strike last night, but uh, it sucks. I might I might have to do a very laborious thing, which is uh, sounds kind of crazy. Which is because the audio levels are really bad on my end because I haven't mastered I have not mastered how to balance my audio like because we're not just doing a podcast, we're also streaming live. Yeah. So figuring out the right balance has been tough and, and uh, before I got here just listen to the levels and they don't seem like mine is way too loud they don't seem salvageable and so I might have to do the crazy bit where I'm actually um, re-recording I might actually do that re-record what I say and since I didn't I don't say much on that show or on any show apparently no <laughs> so, you, you say plenty on, on, on your show um but, but yeah, so I have to do that. Like learning to master that is, um, it's tough. Just, just that's why. Like when Godlieb was on the show, he was very hesitant. Now he's gone into live streaming with, with he's doing stuff with Jerry and game. But before that, he, he really didn't like. Uh, he was opposed to the fact after we experimented with having first trick on YouTube, he wanted to focus more on just concentrate on the podcast product and of course that has its its pros and yeah whereas here we just don't give a crap right we're just <laughs> recording all these background noises and, and, and some people coming in me bumping into friends waitress coming and getting our, our food order we're at this filipino restaurant that kyt recommended he said it was awesome and uh someone from my twitch chat i forget who was recommended that we go for filipino food one time so I knew it was, it was it was fated to be. I, I never I never tried it. This is the first time I tried it. Oh, I thought you said you went here once. I mean I mean before before that time I've never tried Filipino food, so oh, okay. uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. It was actually really good. Maybe a touch salty, um, the the rice that I got, but still still awesome. I remember a friend of mine had like a Filipino nan- nanny, 
or something, and like, or like it was his little sisters or something, you know, when, when he was older. I was like 12 or something at this time and went over to his house and remember she cooked like some kind of thing and I was like, wow, this is so good. I love Filipino food. I don't know if I've eaten it since then, so <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I had it at one time. I'm like, I'm pretty adventurous when it comes to food. I'd like to know, like, I'd like to ask the Filipino people, uh, our listeners, like, what the trademark dishes, like Vietnamese, we know it's pho, and uh, yeah, Cantonese, you know, well, depends what you ask, you know, you have, you have uh, people who love General Tao, <laughs> me, me I, I, I'm in love with, uh, you know, classic Mapo stuff. tofu. Uh, there, there's stuff that's, like that, you know. That's classic, that's the classic. Um, so, but yeah, no, I... The Philippines, for how big it is as a country, isn't that necessarily that famous for its food, right? Obviously, China, people refer to Chinese food, but there's just so many different things. Every region has their own stuff, right? Then there's even Indian food. There's just, it's such a big country, there's all different stuff. And, uh, you know, Thai food, Japanese food, these are things we think of as staples, but I guess Japanese food is mainly like ramen or sushi, right? Right, right. So I think some of the other stuff hasn't really taken off here yet. <laughs> but... We don't really think of Filipino food that much, though. So. I don't even know, like, the names that, that, that were on that menu. I've yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, maybe this will be, we'll, we'll get hooked and we'll start recognizing the names. <laughs> maybe it's just, it's just a question of time. But some cuisines just aren't as world famous as others, right? Like, uh, you don't go like, you know, there's, I guess there's the full English breakfast. But other than that, nobody wants that English food, for example. Right, right. Yeah. And Canadian food, everybody just thinks of poutine or maple syrup. <laughs> That's true. Like, what, what, what's even a defining dish? Yeah, we're, well, like, we're a country of immigrants, right? So we have, like, all food from all over the world. That's, and as well as, like, our standard thing is kind of American fare, right? Burgers and that nonsense. Yeah, see, both of us, I think, prefer <laughs> Asian food to that type of thing. <laughs> um... But yeah, we're supposed to do some magic content in this because this is this is table for two. Yeah. Podcast about magic and nonsense. The nonsense out of the way now. We could focus just up on magic. People, yeah, people have been asking when our next episode was. I, I've been. Uh, it's, it's right now, fools. It's right now. It's been it's been tiring. It's been tiring preparing for uh, Throne of Eldraine and. Uh, yeah, you got you got the Arena Super Cup this weekend. Right? And the Arena Super Cup, which I haven't started preparing for. So. What? How did you tough. start? I thought that's what you were busy doing last week. <laughs> you have a title to protect. I, I, you know, whoever wins the Arena Super Cup becomes the new co-host of the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the secret prizes. Gonna keep my title. No, uh, just kidding. That it's that's not the case because Kyoto's not gonna win this time. Last last week we talked about like uh, just just a quick bit from last week we talked about expanding uh, ranges and, and John uh, Jonathan Zhang final nub decided to play Valakut and, and said that was uh, an example of him expanding his range he was doing it for us he and did he get crushed uh, he got crushed and good uh, job Jonathan gave us a shout out for, for getting crushed <laughs> I mean I think it's valuable like, like you know the old chess adage right is when you win you teach and you lose you learn. Now, magic isn't exactly like that because there's a bunch of variants. So often you can win without actually learning any, without like teaching somebody anything and lose without learning anything. But I think it's still, you know, I'm sure in terms of magic ability, playing Valak at an event, like when you haven't played anything like that before, does expand the things that you think about. But that's not necessarily a deck I would, I would pick as my number one thing to expand my horizons with. But 
I noticed you brought this book Range by David Epstein with, with you. Yeah, It's yeah. on your backpack. You just put it here on the table. Yeah, I'm re I haven't read a book in a while. I haven't bought physical books in a while. And I, I think I was, um, with a lot of things I've bought in the past, what I realized that, and, and I'm sure you've, you've encountered that, you, you envision how you're going to use something and it's not, it doesn't play out that way. Uh, for example, I, I used to think I got a Surface Pro 3, the, the first like really good Surface with, with touch and, and while I was maybe Sick still in school, well, <laughs> but like I intended to, the whole hype was it that it came with a pen and that you could jot notes with it. and. And I envisioned myself, yeah, yeah, that's going to be my note-taking application. I'm going to be very efficient. I, I never really tried it. Notes. No, you, you took a, tried it once, and then after <laughs> you stopped it. That, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, when I was younger, I'd fall into that trap, especially with technology. You buy all this new stuff because you're new, and you vision yourself. Like, you, you look at the best-case scenario, right? It's like the Joshua Lamish style of deck building that where you like, you know, you, you like, oh, what if I have this card and this card and this card? It works really well together, you know? Right. Like, well... What happens if one of those things doesn't like line up exactly? What about the you know the, viewing the worst case scenario? It's also valuable, though. The middle case is probably the <laughs> the most valuable. I I was overvaluing tech basically. I, I yeah. thought I would always read stuff on my on a Kindle or get all these audio uh, ebooks, but uh, by doing that, by focusing too much on tech, I underrated some aspects of, of real life books. Not not. Oh, just I love that. real life books. I hate reading. <laughs> I hate reading on, on like my iPad or or computer or something. A, a book like I real books are just so good. And I, I I'm famous for reading, having read three thousand books myself or so. So I, I enjoy my books. So, though I do often books like this, like this type of book that are kind of nonfiction and like. Those are the ones that I, I buy and don't finish the most often. You know? uh, this one, ooh, that's the subtitle, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Ooh, so it does sound like it applies to our conversation last week. <laughs> it, it does. Um, the thing I, I underrated was uh, one of the aspects, we, 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 some people usually talk about the feel, the easier to read, but my, my, the thing I didn't really think about was the conversation starter, where like, people, random person see you, or even a friend sees you, or they're coming over your place and then see that they... They maybe read the same book, or that looks interesting, and it sparks a conversation that otherwise would never take place. Uh, but but this yeah, this book deals with. Uh, it's interesting because it deals with what we talked about last week, and, and has something that I'd love your opinions on because it brings it into light or, or talks about stuff we've talked about before, and because Ma Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, probably a famous author, came out with a book called, oh, I forget, it's The Outliers, uh, which really promoted the 10,000 the 10, 10, hour, hours, yeah. deliberate practice rule, and um, basically, uh, David Epstein is, is trying to counter that by, by looking at uh, it more deeply and more examples where, I mean, where his core, his most basic example is Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer, where Tiger Woods learned to golf because of his dad from a very early age, was specialized into it, and then became a superstar, versus Roger Federer, who actually was uh, diving into a variety of sports that all of them had to do with a ball, and then he felt like, because he was dealing with whether it be squash or maybe soccer, he felt he had better hand-eye coordination that would later on help his tennis career. Right. And, and to bring it back to something we've talked about, which is where um, you can do that in golf, where, where we talk about pattern recognition a lot, where it's, it's more valuable in something like golf, where you get 
instant feedback as to whether you did something wrong or right, right? Like you swing the ball, it goes like way off, and you know that swing was bad, and you can adjust from there. And we had talked about like how magic and why I think maybe like even kids who start early, they don't improve a lot because they don't have that instant feedback. No one's telling them that they're doing something bad. Or But in chess, I guess in chess you're more likely, I don't know, to yeah, know. Yeah, well, for me, my, for chess, like, I, you know, I, I played chess a lot when I was younger and was pretty, you know, my dad especially put me to dive deep into that. And for me, you know, there's a lot of, in chess there's a lot of, you know, remembering positions and, and like, learning openings and stuff. But that, that wasn't that interesting to me and also I think isn't the stuff that's really lasted with me been useful. What's been useful is kind of figuring out your, that the fact that you're presented with a problem and you have to solve it. And in chess, there's no outside factors, right? It's just all there on the board. It's you have perfect information. So how do you approach solving this problem? You can, you, you know, if you, as you're a kid, you just make moves that like look good or you do trial and error, which is you know a very traditional human way to approach problems. But really, what eventually you learn is just how to think through things, a process of thinking. And I think that's incredibly valuable, and that's kind of what I try and teach my students in magic as well, is how to approach thinking about something. Like, this is the scenario you're in, and I ask them, like, not what they do, but what do they think about? What are, what are, like, what are the things you're considering doing? And how do you come, what's your process for coming to an answer, to a decision? And I think that that is something that has a lot of broad you know, applications, not just in magic, but outside in terms of anything. Being able to think and problem solve and come to decisions in tough spots are all valuable things in a wide array of, of situations. Ooh. Wow. Would you like gloves? Or? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. Sure, we'll have some gloves then. Food looks amazing. Wow. That's incredible. I did not expect this to all come on one giant platter. Actually, I gotta pause so I can take a nice picture because this looks sick. Damn, that was a nice meal. <laughs> that was... Took a little pause there, Kerry. He's like, we're just gonna take a picture. And he's like, actually, I'm gonna devour this whole thing. <laughs> um, I don't know where I left off, but. Basically, what I wanted to bring to your attention was um, in the book. Uh, we talked about pat- like what was it? We talked about patterns a lot, recognition. How how I felt like in chess, and, and you know, you, I think you talked about it before I stopped to uh, pause the show. You know, how you build up all these patterns playing early, and then um, which led to the whole Polger sisters uh, story, where right. his dad, her dad. And decide, their idea. Yeah, <laughs> three sisters decide to, from the, before they were born, had this plan to make chess. Well, maybe not chess geniuses, but geniuses from the start. And then she, he picked chess along the way. The, the love story is kind of interesting. Um, talked about it in the book where it was his mom's friend's daughter. And he, when they met, he straight up told her his plan. He, she thought she was, he was weird. And then at some point they well, became... He is weird. He is weird. <laughs> they became pen pals. And then I don't know where she's like, he, he proposed and uh, they decided to do this experiment. And all three sisters became really good at chess. Um, Susan, the oldest one, fought for, for the Women's World Championship. The second one hit International Master. Uh, the third one was, I think the young, was it just female or just the youngest Grandmaster period at one point held the record. Um, I'm not sure, but, but she, definitely world-class players, all of them. Right. And then the question is, it's like, does, and then you brought up the point, like, okay, like, what type of parent would be fostering uh, this type of environment and how much 
nurture versus nature. Lots of interesting questions. But back to the pattern thing, one of the things they did, this experiment, I never heard about it, was they had uh, a white truck with a chessboard on it, passed by Susan uh, Polger, and then with a, with a chess position, and it passed by, and she was able to, uh, like, uh, like you would be able to uh, redo the position, like make recreate it on the board, and then what they did do the same thing, but had a chess positions that didn't really make sense, like random, and yeah. she she failed, she couldn't do it. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, it was cool to know that it's like you have all these patterns in your mind, but like they are, it doesn't make you necessarily, the book's like I'm saying that, you know, doesn't make them a super genius or someone with super memory. It's just that they're just really good in, in the space that they're good in, like in those positions, they're yeah. used to them. Well, it's, it, it's interesting how the brain works. Like there's one other cool thing that, for instance, uh, I think there's these tests you can do where you have, have the word green, for example, and if you have it, you, and, and you, but you have like a different shade of color, and then you have the word red, another shade of color, and you're you're asked not to to say what the word is, but to say what the color is of the word. So the green could still be green, but then red could actually be blue or something. So you're supposed to, you'd say green blue, not green red, despite what the word says. And it's a lot harder to do that than you think because your brain is tricked by see it does recognize these words, you know as and that it recognizes their meaning and they're connected to colors and so you know it, it slows you down significantly so what's interesting is they in the cold war they used this to try and figure out who like were russian spies because they would have the the word for the colors in russian oh. and then have the you know the colors so of course if you were just a normal american or whatever you would just you would just have no barrier because you don't recognize the word it has no meaning but if you were if you knew russian it would be a lot harder for you to do, and so they could find people that way. So I thought it was like a, a cool thing, and just kind of shows how our brains are wired in in weird ways. You, you can, there's studies also on how different cultures have different things that are easier to notice, like looking at a fish tank for you know 10 minutes or whatever. What do you notice? And someone from Japan and someone from the United States would know would be able to tell you various different things. You know. The individual versus the collective kind of is, you know, in terms of cultural importance. And so that's kind of, you know, to do with the pattern recognition there. It's all interesting. And certainly, you know, Magic is a game where there are a lot of patterns, but the game is also constantly changing. So sometimes the patterns you learn aren't, aren't necessarily valuable in, you know, a couple of years' time, which is why you see some players good in certain eras and not in others, which is why, again, you know, we're talking about people who are deck specialists. Well, they're used to the patterns that those kind of decks have. Like, you and I, for example, played a lot of, like, these aggro control decks, right? And so you kind of figure out these patterns. You can recognize pretty easily when the time is to shift gears and change from being, like, the control deck to being the aggro deck, right? Right. Or, from, or when, like, card advantage is the thing you need to worry about or tempo is the thing you need to worry about. And... You know, those aren't patterns that are necessarily evident to other people. But, for instance, like, someone who's just played a bunch of those decks in the past, they can start playing Legacy and play a deck like Delver and play it pretty well compared to, like, if they're picking up a deck that's just completely different, like Storm. But, you know, which requires a different set of patterns. Right, right. I love what you said there. Like, I used to view these people like, 
we thought like Madge Laton, we talked about it. <laughs> Shout outs to him, I love him. Like Affinity Masters or the Hatfield Brothers. Oh my god, these guys are so good at legacy or or but well in some cases these people are actually strong players, but sometimes I might have been overrating some of them. Um so it, it depends. And um the, the, yeah, the whole thing made me think about what you said. Basically, uh, back to the Tiger Woods and golf thing, because golf doesn't really change. Well, if we had like a spectrum of games and then and the different attributes of them, like Magic is is not has these attributes that make it unlike golf, so that you can't be like Tiger Woods and just like grind really early and be really good at it because there's new cards because it's a shifting environment that's why you're advocating not just like grinding a zillion matches but you have to be able to improve the other stuff that that you can port right which which i think is basically learning how to think about situations i think that's the that's the underlying skill in magic that carries on over formats it carries on to other things and that's why like you often see some people who were really good back in the past. If they were a, gr- a great, like li- limited player, they'll often have a lot more success in current Magic than someone who was great at constructed back in the day. Because a lot of the constructed stuff is, is recognizing these patterns and learning to play your deck, whereas in limited, it's learning like how to deal with unexpected situations. Um. They were crank the volumes are inconsistent. They were cranking it up and oh yeah, they were really cranking it up. I, didn't, I, I also didn't want to advertise whatever vehicle was being advertised. <laughs> um, man, this guy has like a lot of stories. Like David Epstein on, on a podcast I heard, and talks about not only uh, range in terms of how how we learn about the game and improve about it, but something else we talked about is like teams and and who we would want. And his story was interesting, where he talked about how a Nintendo CEO or a very high-ranking Nintendo guy in his team meetings he would purposely throw out wild ideas or crazy ideas on purpose so that people under him would be more comfortable sharing their outside-the-box ideas and I was like right. whoa yeah that's, that's really that's, that's really yeah just so like, it's really important to foster an environment where it's okay to be wrong it's okay to be crazy it's okay to because some you know once in a while those things pay off that's why like there's you know and again it's partly cultural but you know there it's it's really smart for someone up there to, to clearly lead by example by you know th- if this person can say all these idiotic things or whatever <laughs> then I can not not worry about if my thing's idiotic or whatever maybe maybe you know the idea is idiotic but there's like something in there that's valuable like again, you know, I can talk about the miracle deck where you know the classic is that Noah Long came up with these decks and they were awful. Kaplan and I tested them in the boat; they're bad. But in those decks, we found out that like you know some of these miracles were really powerful cards when you had like a late game, a bunch of mana, just enough time. And we kind of took that and, and went with that. And that's often how deck building in a team works: is that you have a lot of failed decks, but you can take parts of those failed decks and you learn what like what worked in those decks, what didn't work. And you don't have to. Re- you're not going to try the stuff that didn't work any in anywhere else. But you're going to try the stuff that did work with something else, you know. And that's kind of how, like, you know, especially like various decks get formed. Jerry's famous for taking, you know, the Thopter Foundry combo and the Vampire Hexmage combo and combining them into one deck. And you know, 
very strong. Like both of those decks, you know, had their weaknesses, but like when you have both combos, you kind of could cover the weaknesses of each other. Are you guys done? Yeah, we're done. Yeah. Uh, it comes with ice cream. Yep. Like ice cream. Yes, yeah. please. <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> Thank you. Has anyone ever turned down ice cream? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> See, th that's that's something I would teach my students: never turn down free ice cream. That's just value. <laughs> so this does also make you think that if you're one of the leaders of your team, and, and I I'm, I know you have been basically since since Man of the Prime started, that you'd have to be someone that. Like let's say the newer members have to feel like they're comfortable sharing. Well, they do call ideas. me insane, Hain, right? So I certainly I, I lead by example. I brew a lot of awful decks, you know. I think the most recent one I can think of that was really bad was like 42 lands in standard or something, you know. It played the card that's like X green, reveal the top X cards in your library or whatever, put all lands into play, tap, <laughs> something like that. You know? It had like all sorts of other nonsense. It was just it was a hilarious deck, but it, and it actually like was okay, you know, it was like a 40% deck, but if you're willing to try something like that, people are not going to be afraid to try their things, though, there was the funny story of, like, Josh McLean, every PT would take out his, like, you know, Ornithopter and, like, you know, Master Ethereum or whatever, and just, like, try and, try and make, not Master Ethereum, but whatever, that, all the, those, those random, like, crappy artifact cards and trying to make them work and then finally like he, he tried it out again in the closet he was playing it in the closet because we were going to make fun of him for having tried it again but this time it was actually good because of the new cards from the core set you know there's like shrapnel blast and soul artifact and so on and so then we actually actually took it out and we and we played with it and we ended up playing it in the pt you know but like <laughs> so there, there can certainly like magic players can often have sometimes toxic ideas against new things there's this idea that you know tr like if something's good it would have already been figured out and it's not necessarily true someone has to try it it's like you need to have a reason why you think this deck could be good though it has to do you know right, we discussed right. it has to do something different not just a worse version of something else you know, if it does a better version of something else it's pretty obviously going to be great but you have to prove that it is better yeah like you said like you have you want to accept everything but but you also don't want to waste time. You exactly. Want to that's, be there's efficient. a balance. Yeah. So that's a tough challenge that I'm sure you you have to face every time you're preparing for for uh, a mythic championship. So. Yeah. The, the I think the trick is that you you want to try and like give everything a theory testing first before you actually just physically build something and play games with it because that's like that takes a fair amount of time to do though with online stuff it's actually a lot easier you can just play you can build your deck boom and play like a couple games and just you, someone's gonna get a feel for it and then move on quickly but again people sometimes move on too quickly like there's the funny thing that pascal maynard has the post from his team forums or whatever where he's like oh green white tokens it's a piece of crap don't waste any more time on this i tested it. it's it's garbage and then obviously it was the most broken deck in standard for whatever you know eight months do you remember how it happened? Like he, he just well, didn't... I wasn't on his team, but he like you know, there's some pictures of him posting like greenway tokens do not waste time on or whatever, <laughs> and he posted some list and he was missing certain things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Wow. But so that's the that's the danger when you miss out on something. The way Magic is nowadays, it's mostly it seems like the most of the decks are kind of 
obvious. It's about you get more value in tuning something than coming up with something new. So we had there still are new things like the Cathis deck, right? That was a relatively new surprise deck that you know, was was around for a little while. Like obviously, Scapeshift people figured out right away. If you're going to play Field of the Dead, you play Scapeshift. But the Cathis combo is a little harder to figure out how exactly you're going to manage to make it work. And then it's actually good. It seems kind of oh, that's funny that you could do that, but. The fact that basically you could build the deck to be not only all in on the Kethis combo, but have the mid-range value plan so you could just grind people out as well as combo out people out is what really gave it its strength. So that's why like somebody building a mid-range Planeswalker value Kethis deck and somebody building a combo Kethis deck, they realize they should just combine the two because parts of each of them work, right? Or, you know, just even just a mid-range Esper deck is kind of what the Cathos deck is in some ways. So, it's, there's a balance, and you always end up failing one way or another from time to time. If you never fail either direction, though, then you're, then you're tilted one way too far. If you're always tuning and you never have a new deck, then you're you're not spending any you're not spending your enough time like testing new decks and you're failing there. Right. If you're always if you're always like trying out all these new brews, you often end up not with a tuned enough deck, and you end up with too many crappy brews. Then you're failing that direction, right? But if you never end up with like not not trying about a bunch of brews and basically you want to you want to have failures in both directions. That shows you're doing something right. right. But if you only have failures in one direction, then you need to adjust. Some people would do well to listen to that, definitely too, because it's, it's sometimes it's hard to tell, and that's a, a shortcut if you've done it quite a few times, and then you look back, hey, you know, yeah. I've, I've never been able to do this. Then, well, there's probably something wrong with your process. I think certainly people tend to fail in the direction they brew too much, like, it's, which is why I think it's valuable to have someone who's working on two versions of a deck. So that, like, even if your the rest of your group fails, you have like somebody who, who created a good tuned version of the best deck. This is going to be like the strongest test audio-wise because I don't think we've recorded in so many different places <laughs> on one this is show. Our second time, but we, we paused a bunch in the first place. But yeah, yeah, but but just moving. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. But like the varying volume uh, was interesting. Um, and now, now we've got some street sounds in the back. Yeah, vroom. But at least there won't be any crazy pigeon squirrel fights this time, right? <laughs> we had talked about the range of stuff. And, and okay, the last thing from the book, because I've just read two chapters, was um, I think something you've probably heard of where if you test veterans or someone that is very experienced at something, whether it be doctors or, or eye doctors, I'm, I'm trying to... I don't remember the exact example of the book, but if you have them, uh, they face a typical problem that they would face at their job, but you tweak it a little bit, they might do worse at it than someone that's more fresh because they would not be tied to the way they've been doing things for so long. Exactly, yeah. So well, Similarly, it's, it's been shown that like in the company, you don't want to have people all from the same kind of background because they tend to approach problems in the same way. You want people from a variety of different backgrounds because they all approach problems differently from... You know, their life experiences. 
and, and you, you know, it's it, like your example where, you know, problems slightly different and people are going to try and do it the way the previous solution was when actually they need a new approach is better, right? Like, if you slightly change the, the distance of something, you know, maybe you can't make a bridge across two bodies of water, right? You have to take a ferry, for example. So with magic, like like you said, being something that changes a lot, has so many different angles and aspects that you have to attack, then you should be trying to actually expand your range and, and be familiar with, be good at different types of scenarios. Right. But how do you do that is the question. Right. It can't just be practicing and playing. Can't we just write an article and have you now, now know how to approach magic? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, that's why that's why it doesn't exist because you can't. It's hard to monetize that. It's hard to because I think everybody's road is a little different because everybody again approaches problems a different way. They have to figure out a way that works for them to approach problems. Like even when I try and teach someone, I can't really teach someone the best way to approach something. I can only teach them the best way for me to approach something. And you know the way my mind works and what makes sense for me isn't necessarily for other people. You've heard of things of like different people are different kinds of learning, right? Some people learn through visuals, some people written things, some people auditory. And uh, I think it's magic is somewhat like that in terms of how people approach things, which is why I find it really interesting to learn from a variety of different people. And there's some fantastic magic players who really I can ask like, why did you do this? And they can't tell me. They don't really even consciously know themselves. Subconsciously, there's a reason, and they know it. But consciously, they don't know. Okay, let's somehow fill the, the last, the second half of our episode with something you've been wanting to talk about for many episodes now, which is uh, conscious and conscious competence. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a concept I learned in, in first learned in a poker book, in a me, the mental game of poker. Uh, an author by the name of Jared Tendler, who's a sports psychologist, which you're starting to see like these people with either actual degrees or pseudo degrees in psychology go to golf, be coaches, or, or even post now Freight Magic articles. Um, you know, there's yeah, well, Jonathan, right, does does that type of thing, right? And I've seen I know Sam Party is a big fan of his. He really swears by his work. He bought me his his book is a present, actually. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, Shout out to Sam Party. <laughs> So in, in all that to say, the, in, in, in many different spaces, we're, we're seeing that uh, being more and more of a thing. And, and I think I mentioned one of the reasons is like some, when, when in, in an industry, when it becomes harder and harder to gain an edge, sometimes you might look elsewhere like a mental edge. Uh, like in poker, people are like, okay, well, you know, I'm already maximizing myself in how to play the game. Now, now I need like that mental edge over my opponent to really have that significant edge. And that's where I, I first like uh, what was called um, the mental game poker is where I learned about uh, unconscious competence and, and conscious competence. And uh, so, so why? Like, why yeah. Well, first we should explain what conscious and unconscious kind of mean, right? right conscious right. is like when you're thinking, when you're talking to someone, when you're trying to explain something. You know, like you're reading something out loud. Where your your focus is, where you know your consciousness, basically, right? Where it is. Whereas your unconscious mind is like below that, you know, you have like you, you have an uneasy feeling about someone. You can't say why, but you have that feeling, right? And that's kind of your unconscious mind doing that. For example, so like sometimes you could be thinking about whatever while you're walking home, but it's, it's the path you've walked over and over again. You're not really paying attention to right. how you walk. All right. Similarly, you know, 
something like breathing is, you know, you, we, we breathe all the time without thinking about it. But right now, when I'm talking about it, just think about your breath. And you, you actually suddenly notice that you can't actually breathe without thinking about it when you're, while you're thinking about your breath. You, you, it's, it's conscious and suddenly it's, sw it's switched over from your unconscious that was doing it perfectly well. Now your conscious mind is having to do your breathing in, out, you know. And that's like one of the, the interesting hacks that, you know, it's kind of so subtle, but when you think about it, it's like, how does that happen? That you're just breathing with no, no thought to it. It's just what, like, for instance, I recently learned that whales, right? Whales are mammals, so they, they, but they live in the water, so they actually have to come up to get to breathe, same as dolphins. But what happens when they're sleeping? Well, the answer is that they actually have two brains. One that it's like their awake brain, and it does all processing. Their sleep brain is smaller, and all it does is basically make it swim to the surface every so often to get a breath. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, which is it's pretty cool. So often when you're like, because I went whale watching, and when you're watching the whale, some of the ones that kind of keep repeating the same action over and over again, those ones are actually asleep. <laughs> but, you know, they're just moving, they're swimming, they're doing all this stuff but in their sleep, but because they, they have to, otherwise they die. Now, we're not quite like that, but a little bit like that. We have, you know, even when we go to sleep, our brain is still processing stuff. That's why often, like, you go to sleep and you have a problem in your mind, and you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and some somehow you figured out the solution. That's because, like, your unconscious mind was figuring that out while you were sleeping. Similarly in magic, when you've played thousands and thousands of hours of magic, your conscious mind, you know, it gains the ability to think and reason and figure things out, but often the thing when you just like look at a board state and you're like, you're like, this is the play I want to make, that's not your conscious mind usually thinking that. If you're, if you're like, I, you know, my opponent has three blockers, I have four attackers, and all my creatures are lethal, like, you know, you're, you're thinking through that thing, that's your conscious mind, but just like, I want to attack, and then often your conscious mind is like, why? You're like, why do I want to attack? And then you figure it out. But your unconscious mind just done that, and it's done all that work in a, a fraction of the amount of time. And so that's why huge amounts of magic players have this, you know, unconscious competence that they're, you know, like someone like Seth Manfield or Shahar Shanhar are, you know, even I think Louis Scott Vargas to a certain extent are players that, like, they just do things that are just kind of naturals. You know, they, they play a bunch of magic and they're just so zoned in that they just can make make these plays and they don't necessarily even know why they whereas but it, they're still excellent plays and they often it's very quick whereas some other players like think through their plays a lot more you know with their conscious mind and figure out what to do I would say that I lean that way though I, I, I use both but I, I, I'd say I, I'm much more of a conscious competence in that you know I analyze the board state and go through a kind of a checklist in my head and look at the different options, analyze them, and figure out which one is the best. And I'm relatively quick at that because I have a lot of experience doing that type of thing, partly from chess. And so that's where I'm strong. So, you know, figuring out which one is kind of works for you depends on, like, what type of scenario you should be in. For example, for me, often when I play too much, my unconscious mind takes over when I'm playing Match the Magic, and I go into autopilot. Like, basically, on your unconscious, you're autopilot for the most part. And that often goes poorly for me because, you know, magic is a game where there's all these new scenarios and my autopilot isn't as good as my, you know, physical pilot, I should say, or whatever, my conscious pilot. 
but sometimes you get a read. You just have this feeling that, you know, it doesn't make sense. It seems unlikely for them to have this card, but you just feel really certain that they have that card. And it's surprising how often they have it when you feel that strongly about it. Not like, oh, why do they make this attack? Oh, they probably have that. That's your conscious mind thinking, oh, you know, it makes sense for them to have this combat trick. But your unconscious mind, like, I really have a feeling they have this trick, even though, like, it would make no sense for them to have this in this deck. It's not a card people play, you know, so on. They, and a good amount of the time, that's right. And, and it's from some, some kind of signaling that you don't necessarily know. You know, like body language tells in that way. You, the way your, your opponent's moving themselves. Like if you play a game of Werewolf, which, you know, people can look up what, how to play that game. Sometimes it's called Mafia, where, you know, it's a game of deception. And often people are not good at deceiving. They're, people are very good at spotting deception a lot of the time. So I think trusting your inner, inner monologue kind of of like is fairly effective, more so than you would you would expect. I know Michael Jacob, uh, he, he referred to that part of him as, as the darkest mage. He's like, Michael Jacob made a mistake, but the darkest mage knew what the right play was. He knew that his opponent had this, like, trust in minor darkest mage. <laughs> I haven't seen that guy in a while. Yeah, he hasn't been as active as he once was. I enjoyed watching his stream back when he was one of the early Magic streamers. So this is really interesting to me. I think I'd have to go back and, and read the book just to say what he was talking about. But from my memory, and I might be wrong, is that he said that like from a learning standpoint, you do want to shift for the most part your knowledge from from your un, from your conscious to so that it becomes unconscious, right? Right. Yeah. But there's that caveat where you don't want autopilot it almost goes back links back to the the range thing where you don't want to be so narrow-minded in, in your ways and focus and just that you're such a specialist that you know you don't even think about better ways of doing something in a different a slightly different scenario yeah well like your unconscious mind is much more powerful and much faster right which is why you often can think things and have things figured out plays and magic in just like a second whereas you know obviously your conscious mind takes like a good amount of time to figure things out and, you know, it's why, like, when you with computer programs, like, trying to make AI or robots, that they, they can do all sorts of advanced stuff, but in terms of just, like, walking around, that's incredibly hard, like, the physics of knowing exactly how much to lift your foot and stuff. And your un unconscious mind just does that. No problem. Easy. And it really kind of shows how, how much processing power is going on there in the background that we don't really pay attention to. So... I think the more the more that you can have, you know, magic be something that's working on in the background, that's good. How do you do that? And I think it's from constant exposure to magic. That's where like large amounts of playtesting and playing magic is valuable. And by playtesting, I mean like playing magic games against competent opponents, not necessarily like testing X matchup versus Y matchup. It's just you know putting yourself into scenarios where you have tough decisions and solving them, and then kind of I think your brain records that and you know I'm not I'm not a scientist but right right but like this is just my experience with, with magic. I think it's I think it's valuable to to at least pay attention to what what processes you're using and where you find your strong and I think a lot of the time that if you can have basically everything done by your 
unconscious mind and then have your conscious mind just do like a double check to make sure that like you know you're not autopiloting that this all makes sense then that's a good I think that's a good way for for you to make quick decisions in magic and to make them pretty well for the most part yeah it hasn't been that hard for me in a while just like the last deck I played or whatever was pretty White Weenie, Arena Super Cup number one. What is a White Weenie or mass manipulation? It just required just a dozen games to, to realize uh, what the quick patterns are uh, that I needed to get into were. Yeah, and I think once you have some of these deep patterns down there, like you'll you can extrapolate from patterns you've learned before with new magic decks, right? We have a nice backing up truck noise for the for the podcast. I think that's the first first time we get that one. But yeah, I think it's a it's a tough thing. I mean, I don't know how much talking about it really can help people, but it's something I like to think about, and I think explains to a certain way how different people benefit from different types of magic training. And you know, if you can learn what works for you and focus on that, I think that's. That's really what's beneficial. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I don't know. Especially uh, learning to trust that inner voice. I think that's one of the big things. That it's like you don't know why you can't explain it so often. You don't listen to it, but it's it's right a lot of the time. Yeah, so it's not necessarily just like I guess it. You can't you can't just say it's just a. A random feeling, right? Right. Like, for instance, at like playing my the match before my winning in for my PT most recent PT top eight Mythic Championship, I play against a hard to scales opponent, and they they had no cards in hand. They just drew for the turn, and they make an attack. And I have like two plays. I can make one that's like a worse play, that that but that beats them having walking ballista, or I can make a better play that like you know guarantees me winning without having to draw anything to like kill them and just like I just have this strong strong feeling that my opponent's drawn walking ballista like incredibly strong and I just like so I, I make the sacrifice to make that play and like then they just tap and play their walking ballista and then actually they make a mistake so that I can kill them next turn without really needing anything but it was uh, it was big deal like I ended up you know I had my own walking ballista basically and there's a question of like you know I want to kill on the on the attack back how many counters do I use to kill these thopters that are attacking me and it's just like the way my opponent made that play the confidence they attacked with the way they like looked at their mana you know and, and, and like life total pad and stuff all those things like some part of my brain registered all that and it was like this person has walking ballista they've <laughs> yeah. drawn walking ballista even though it's unlikely they've already cast two or whatever you know like and, like, I think if I don't listen to that little voice, I don't top eight that tournament. And it's, you know, stuff like that is just, like, such a weird thing because I, I, can't, I can't actually say, like, how I knew, but, you know, I can't say which, what thing exactly it was. But where sometimes, you know, your opponent, like, like picks up their graver and, like, looks through the cards and they, like, never do that. And you know they've drawn Snapcaster Mage or whatever, right? Right, right. But that's like your conscious mind is like oh they've drawn snapcaster mage because they're looking at their graveyard but those are like so tells aren't always 
subconscious, but it's 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 interesting, and I think I think there's there's something there, and there's I don't necessarily know how to work around it to learn there, but if somebody can figure it out, tell us, leave us in, the, in the, a comment, and uh, I do you ever run into people that that will bluff a lot in that spot so the reason i say that is because i can distinctively just know one person in my entire well it's just because i played him over and over again really get me a few times which is actually someone you know barry hum uh from the master um he would even in our uh let's say i would say friendly drafts we would do the classic like draft winner gets first pick of, of everything so there was something on the line but the the thing that he would often make me fall for until I started recognizing was the was the whole uh, desperate look or drawing in despair when in fact he actually had the goods in his hand but he would also have that same look and sigh the same way when he was in fact screwed so there were often times when I thought I had the game in hand and he would just he would just like in an instant when I like overcommitted something, his face would change and then he would just like counter it. <laughs> He's and like, I'd gotcha. Be, yeah, and yeah. I'd be like, wow. And he did it to me multiple times. And but I can't see the same thing. I can't even remember anyone else in my career actually doing that where they're like, Sh- like shit, I'm so dead and then like, you know, time time stop. Or I don't know what the Oh I mean I I, I one thing I remember that I know my dad loves to remember is from like some bush league crap that like back in my chess days someone played. They like made a move, and then they just look at their piece that, that they like you know that's that I could I could capture, and they're like, oh, oh no, and they slap themselves in the head or whatever. And I'm like, dude, I see that if I capture that, you're gonna checkmate me on my back rank or whatever. You know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not gonna fall for that. But and there people do equivalent things. Obviously in Magic, there's the the pen trick, right, where you're like opponents figuring out if they're going to attack or not and you pick up your pen to like write oh, down that, change your life total and that like instinctively makes them think that there's nothing's going to happen like you know and then they attack and then oh look you have a flash creature or, or d- destroy attacking creature whatever you know Some, something to blow them out LSV got praised for doing that uh, yeah well his thing was he was picking up the vampire token and he's like hey he like you know <laughs> he's, he's flicking the vampire token when he's got a dad toe you know so is that done? Is like, do you think that's done a lot on the, on the high levels at the GP level, no, the level I played? Incre- is that's not... incredibly bush league stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like you're not usually doing that stuff is going to backfire a lot of the time. So often, sometimes I I like do that stuff. You know, again, it's always balancing your range. Like you said, Barry would you know sometimes do his hemming and hawing and sighing <laughs> when he actually had the goods, but sometimes when he had absolutely nothing. And that way it's more believable, you know, because you don't know what it means. You know, after playing against enough, you know, you're, you have, we talked about being unpredictable, but the, if you, if you always do that stuff, everybody's just going to know, right? But if you, if you never do that stuff, then the one time you do pick up the pen, it means a lot. But other times you can pick up the pen and they're like, oh, they have something and not attack. You can get that too, you know, so it can work both ways. But yeah, I mean, I think I might already on a previous podcast mentioned that one MTG team had gotten like the feedback in their forums or was like, oh, he never blocks right. or whatever. Never, he, he respects, always respects the bluff. And then somebody attacked and I just snap blocked them off. And they're like, what, what, what happened? It's like, well, I, you know, I sometimes block, I sometimes don't. I vary it up. And 
they got God, and that's that's kind of how you have to do it. I mean, showmanship, like you're describing with Barry, I don't know about that, but there are times where like looking dejected can, or looking like confident can can change the the outcome of the game. There's been, there's been many games where if my opponent just turns all those creatures sideways, I lose. The game's over. But <laughs> in those games, sometimes if I have a removal spell, the game's like over for them, right? You know, they they do exactly lethal. It's a lot easier to attack when like you could beat one removal spell or whatever. And sometimes you have two removal spells and you also like act ejected and you make them walk into you. But sometimes you look confident. Something like you can even do is if you can like attack with one creature if you're just completely dead on board just confidently attack like count out their creatures think about the thing and then attack with one there's no how are they going to attack you back you know you, you have you really have to have something you know and <laughs> so there's all sorts of stuff you could do with mind games like you know do you do you go for it because you know it's it's scary and you have to when you're putting all things in the line humans are more scared of losing what we believe is ours than we are we value things that aren't ours so like when you especially when you think you're winning the chance of like not winning is is big the risk of like oh i would lose the game on the spot is something that people value very highly when honestly you know just whether you win or lose matters not when like exactly what the outcome is I started having fun thinking reminiscent about the Barry thing because when he was dejected and, and he was screwed, like he was he was probably actually mad at this. <laughs> and then it's like when he is had the trick, you know, that's some Oscar <laughs> worthy uh, acting. Um, let's wrap up the show with this actually. I think uh, it was a question some people had a while ago and I was always curious about your take which is the whole Jedi mind tricks thing because when it was first brought up by guys like Chapin and, and maybe Mike Long uh, in their earlier written work it, it, I think it's something that at some point it was deemed as really cool yeah you Je Jedi mind it's like a source of pride for people but then I think about like let's say um, Pax and hearing these stories about how people would like you know play look at people's graveyards play with their i don't know hair or something try to confuse them before their opponent's upkeep uh, to draw and trick them into drawing their their spell uh, their card so that they die i mean is that at that point is that even like magic should that even be part of the game so um, i mean jedi mind tricks exist in a gray area right yeah. and it's like there's a line i think the line's different for different people and you know, I think some stuff is clearly on the right side of the line. That, like the pen trick, right? That's like that's that's clear. Like you know, maybe it's bush league, but you're clearly not doing anything unethical, right? By picking up your pen and making your opponent think that you're going to be writing down life total. That's you know. Whereas the like Chapin, all my legal targets gain fear. You know, when you can't target your chameleon colossus. Oh yeah, that one. Like yeah. the goal is for your opponent to misrepresent the game state, right? Like that's even though you're not actually doing anything illegal against the rules, you are hoping that your opponent misunderstands, so you, you are trying to cause a miscommunication. So, that's like, you know, I think that's something that maybe nowadays we wouldn't view as, as kosher. Uh, you know, there's the LSV thing is like, again, closer to the, close to the pen trick, effectively. 
it was really funny because Dazani picked up the token from LSV's hand, grabbed it, and started moving it around as if the blockers are happening. At that point, you know, if you're Luis, just know what's ha you know he's attacking. But <laughs> it's uh, there's like think, other things that you know. What did you think about the? Uh, I don't remember the exact the uh, Esper Charm, Cedric Phillips. Esper Charm and yeah, his opponent said Esper Charm targeting me. Well, a, a lot of things rules have changed on. On this stuff, I think that, like, communication, anything where you're just abusing the f communication, I think is bad. But like, I've done things in the past, like you know, the one the one story I like to tell, where I played a Dragonstorm deck with no dragons in my main deck. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I just play Dragonstorm, four storm copies. I show my hand. I'm like, there's no dragons in my hand. My opponents would just concede. And you know. Did I say that I've been dragons in my deck? No, you know, did, 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 did my opponents think that there were dragons in my deck? They absolutely did, you know. So that's like, you know, would I do that nowadays? Yeah, that's like, I don't know. But it was it was funny and it was a bit of a social experiment too. <laughs> but I I don't even know what, you, you've stumped me. I don't even know how to feel about that. I think anywhere where your opponent concedes based on something they believe that, like, you know, that's often what the Jedi mind tricks are about. And I think as long as the game state isn't being misrepresented necessarily, I think it's okay. But, <laughs> but you say you're not sure. <laughs> I mean, there it's a case-by-case -case basis, in, in my opinion. And with Magic moving more to online, it's going to be less and less of a, a thing. And I guess an example is online where you say you can say good game right as one of the emotes the classic example andre's opponent said good game to it andre's like good game back and then attacked with all his creatures the opponent plays settle the wreckage oh that's happened to me online before too or... yeah so like is that you know what is that is that bad sportsmanship is that jedi mind tricking like you know where, where do you draw the line on that and uh i don't know like it's uh it's tough. Certainly, something I've done is my my opponent has a bunch of creatures. They say they emote good game to me. I emote good game back. They attack with all the creatures. Then I settle them. Yeah. You know, they started the good game there. They did a preemptive good game, <laughs> so they deserve it. Like that's usually my emote. My emote, uh, like sportsmanship, I think, is that I will. If my opponent gives me any snark, I'll blast them back. <laughs> but you know, I'll be I'll be very polite. You know, my good game will be legitimate and stuff. I'll say hello. You know nice and stuff it's all like serious unless my opponent started with something snarky like uh the definitely the best is when they preempt the preemptive good game and then you get the good game in the back when you actually win but what's what's bad is you saying good game when you're not actually dead like i think that is that for me breaches the etiquette okay like, you say, good game, and then you just keep playing, and the game goes on for 15 more turns or whatever. You know, like, that's happened to me once online. They're like, good game, and then they, like, play a creature to, like, chump block or whatever, and I attack, and they just chump block, and then they draw a removal spell or whatever. And, I, I, you know, I draw four lands in a row, and suddenly we're actually in the middle of a real game. You know, <laughs> you should say good game when you're going to concede. Or when your opponent's going to attack you and you're going to die, you know, like... That's my that's my opinion, but other people can can view things differently. The good game with the settle wreckage, like, hey, you know, I, it is not your opponent's responsibility to 
to like do anything there they're trying to trick you into something versus like the other scenario is it's just kind of rude you know they're not really trying to trick you it's just the game isn't actually over um, and I think it's different and basically anybody listening to this podcast don't walk into settle a wreckage or whatever KYT's probably done it uh, no, but I, I've done something stupid like that before where an online opponent was like, good game, and I thought, like, I just, I actually, I don't know. I was, I was, I was a dumb, innocent uh, little kid. I'm like, hey, he's just telling me I can attack freely, and he just completely owned me with, with a spell. And I remember being really mad that I actually felt wronged. I, I probably, like, yelled at the guys, like, how could you do this to me? Like, this was on the old MTGO client, so... It would never yeah. happen again, but, you know, I got oh, tricked. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm the old I'm MTGO client. I had some people do all sorts of ridiculous things like, oh, I accidentally skipped through my turn. I have a lethal fireball on my end or whatever. Just like pass the turn or whatever. I was going to do this. And it's like, well, you didn't. Like, I'm not going to just give you an extra turn and not attack or whatever. Drawn out. Like, you know, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Man, I'm curious what all the listeners think about it this because you're you're making me like i'm not sure anymore i just know i, I feel strongly that's why i say it's a gray area there's some the air, there's some, yeah the pack thing because is, it's not even like because you're delaying the game you're like oh can i see your graveyard oh how many cards are, are there in your hand or uh, like you know start rubbing your tummy t- <laughs> pat yourself on the head. Hey, call the judge ask yeah. for a bathroom break go <laughs> yeah. to the bathroom and then he draws his card yes <laughs> like, oh that want. does remind me of a funny story though of like two people playing for top eight of a pt one guy's like, Judge, I, I just can't concentrate. I need to go to the bathroom. Judge's like, okay, go to the bathroom. The guy goes, but he doesn't actually use the bathroom. Just puts some water in his hair, brushes it inside, looks in the mirror, goes back, comes, sits down, flips over a lethal Carvex torch or whatever. <laughs> just like, you know, horrible, horrible manners there. Just, just the big rubbins. But like, you know, you can, there's stories like that. There's, there's all sorts of things and basically where we as the community decide is acceptable and not acceptable is where the line is though you know a lot of people would argue the line is what's legally allowed by the rules the thing is you know as a community would decide yes they're not going to get banned from the game but you can still view something as scummy and not want to associate with someone because that they're they have this set of morals or whatever when you don't well, it's kind of crazy to hear those stories about Kenji Samura, right? If people were going to die to pack, he's like, no, he would remind yeah, them. Yeah, he's like, no, stop, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Shota Yasuke would do that too. Like, it's uh, it's cool. Like, it's a different <laughs> perspective, right? Of They don't want to win that the game that way. And I can get that, you know? A lot of people, like, like honestly, you know, if every match at a PT or something, my opponents, you know, mulligan to oblivion and I won it very easily, I wouldn't be particularly upset. <laughs> But if, if that happened literally all the time, after buying a couple of yachts, I would maybe get a little bit bored of it and like want to have some good games of magic. <laughs> but like I understand, you know, for me, when I'm playing competitively, I, I want to win and you know, I prefer to win in a good game. I pref- my second priority is winning in a sh- crappy game. And then after that, it's it's like losing a, a good game, right? And then losing a crappy game. So winning winning is, you know, the number one thing. But I definitely can understand the perspective of wanting to win through, 
know, outmaneuvering, outplaying people in Magic. I just think that, you know, that, for instance, getting horribly unlucky and getting screwed or something, that happens to me, too. I lose games that way. I'm going to take the, the games I win as well. <laughs> and everybody wins and loses games that way, no matter how lucky or unlucky you think you are. Happens to the best and the worst of us. God. Shout out to Ben Stark. Hey, he, he crushed his... Did he crush his split? He oh, won. he crushed his split, yeah. He went 6-1 and one and then, I think, like 2-0 the, the top four. He's, he's on to the top 16 of the, of the next Mythic Championship. With Mono Red. And then Mono Blue. My good friend Mike Sigrist unfortunately came fifth after starting 4-1. He ended up getting tiebreakered out after going 4-3 in his split, so he didn't get to play in the top four. I was, I was rooting for him because he's been having a bit of a rough year. But that's magic, you know? Sometimes you have great years, sometimes you have bad years. You've been pretty consistent, though, right? All things considered? Uh, consistently mediocre, yeah. <laughs> At all. It's all relative. Like, I'd say Reed Duke has been probably the most consistent player in the Pro Tour in, in like the modern era. I might be like number two or three or something. Which is kind of crazy because I always keep feeling like he 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 falls short of winning the ultimate prize. But when when looking at like the career stats. When voting for Hall of Fame, I was like, "Holy!" Yeah, his, like, his stats are incredible. I was like, "Is this even like wow?" Yeah, it's 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 surprising that it's possible, honestly. You know, uh, and he's he you know now he's gotten in, but he got he got the votes, ninety four percent of the vote. So, assuming no weirdness happens, he's going to get inducted. And congratulations to him. He's uh, definitely someone I couldn't imagine the Hall of Fame without. You know. He's, he's like a if I could have a Hall of Fame of like 10 people he'd probably be one of the 10 so just the good for him it's just weird because he's the just it was just significantly on, on many metrics it was just like wow unreal just unreal yeah a lot of people who aren't like pros even and even some pros don't necessarily follow people's finishes throughout the year that aren't like these super flashy finishes right top 8's People, most people follow to a certain extent, but like top 16, some people notice. Then after that, though, these like deep runs or money finishes and stuff, very few people actually know. And so, you know, those are often a bigger sign of how, who's a scary opponent than necessarily who top eights like a, a pro tour every couple years or something. So, like for the longest time. For, for a good, yeah. For a good portion, I felt like, no, especially when Reed went, oh, and whatever, like he got destroyed at his first Worlds, and yeah, I was there. I think even by by not just pros, but by ca the casual crowd, he was probably considered the worst player in in the Peach uh, Garden, right? Like worse that Owen and, and Huey were better than him. I think maybe some casuals would would have put. Would probably put maybe Huey at number three. They would have Owen then Reed, but 
Yeah, I think that could be. I mean, Reed is Reed is a great player, and in some ways, he's like the player of the of, of the last while. Like he, you know, he puts in the work, and he gets the results, and he's an inspiring player. Do you think he might? Do you, do you think he's like basically rated where where he should be, or do you think he might be slightly underrated? Because I don't think he's ever been, at least in my circle of whatever conversation people I talk to, I don't think he's ever been like named one of the very elites. And but that the, his numbers are elite, which is kind his of his numbers are absurdly elite. I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's like yeah, that, like he's never part his of pro like, tour, his pro tour numbers are just incredibly good. Reed with a bunch of practice behind him is a force to be reckoned with, and. I think, like for instance, that first Worlds, he seeing his reaction to it was inspiring because you know, again, I was there and he wrote down notes. Yeah, he, he did horribly. A lot of people yeah. would just be like, "This is a horrible tournament. I had a horrible experience. I got so unlucky, all this stuff." But him, he just wrote down notes from every match, what he could have done better. Right. And he just had this a notebook full of stuff, and like you know, I remember he was showing it to a bunch of us, including like Finkel, and we we're just like, "This is insane." We're just like, "This is this is." This is look at this like who does that you know Reed does that and you know he takes that and he builds on it and he tries to improve from his mistakes and he's he, I think he is one of the elite in the world and you look at his numbers and there's a lot of them and it's, it's hard to you know call that a, a fluke like maybe he's been running a bit hotter than his expectation in terms of like you know basically every pro tour doing well but it's uh it's still like you know, I think, I think a big sign, and I think, I, I think Reed. There's definitely some some people that underrate him for sure. I mean, like he doesn't have a title, like the best con- limited player in the world, right? So yeah, he's not a specialist. <laughs> you know, other like, than maybe a Jund specialist or something, but Jund is kind of a generalist deck in some ways, right? <laughs> but you know, he's that's what I mean. Like he's never had these titles, like top five in the world, number one limited player in the world. Um, and then, you know, we, we constantly hear people like Shouda. We've heard you, he, like, praise Javier Dominguez as possibly the best active player. And, uh, but yeah, it's good to hear that that you you view uh, Reed as one, one of the... Yeah, because I don't know if Reed's ever been, like... I don't know if... The thing is, I don't know if there's been a point in time where I would say Reed was the number one player in the right, world at that right. time. But he's basically always been top ten. Right? Maybe always been top five, even. And... It's certainly possible at some point he was number one, but it just usually feels someone else is shining brighter. But he's always there in the conversation. Okay, gotcha. And that's not a bad spot to be. You know? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> you know, like you're in the conversation for best five players in Quebec for sure. <laughs> Have you ever been number one? No, because no. I've always been alive. But I guess Matt, did magic exist before I was born while you were still alive? <laughs> that's no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the time frame where I could have been number one. Yeah, but no, I think I'm older than Magic. No, there's, there's some legends here. Shoutouts to the, to Dan Kramer and uh, JLRR. Oh, before, yeah. Before her time. And Yi Chang. Some... Wait, was he considered elite? Did you did you think he, he was good? For, yeah, he was one of the elite Quebec players for sure. He's he's. I, I credit him a lot with getting good at Magic. Getting, going to his house, you know, every every evening basically to, to, to money draft leaving in the morning to go to class <laughs> you know <laughs> oh it's 8 a.m gotta go run to class <laughs> so who's, who's missing from that previous gen that we named well john stern was a uh, of course you know he's the grandfather of canadian magic 
John Stern. You, you Google grandfather of Canadian magic, <laughs> you'll find John Stern. <laughs> JLRR, Dan Kramer. Well, there's Guillaume Carnage, Guillaume oh, Cadau. Yeah. yeah. Shouts to those guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cormier. There's a lot of a lot of old school. Uh, who else would? David Root, of course, was, was was here in Quebec at one time. Yeah, my mind just associates him with an Ontario guy. Yeah, now. yeah. Well, he's, he is now. He's out. He's out with uh, the, some other old legends, right? Of the Canadian Magic. And I don't really, honestly. I'll, earlier than that, I don't really know who was active in the community because that's those are that's kind of like people. Some who were before my time, and some who kind of were ending as my time began. Uh, and that's. That's my experience. A lot of the really old legends of Canadian magic, I don't know where they're from necessarily. Some, you know, I know are known. I know they're from Toronto or from Vancouver, but can we think of someone else truly legendary from Quebec? If you look at if you look at like pro points or planeswalker points, I guess that's the the way to to see it. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm. Quebec's present, but in some ways, I'm. It's getting to be the point where I'm. I might be the past now. Yeah. I'm an old timer. You know, I'm getting getting old. Now we're, we're listing these names and we're, we're trying to think of the names. It, it's actually giving me a warm fuzzy feeling of face uh, people. Face off people. <laughs> of why I started man deprived. Right. Because I couldn't figure out who these people were. So it's giving me the the fuzzies of. One, uh, and they never connected. Me. Like the the they were, they were all sector, sectors, right? There was the. Com- Quebec sector and like which Montreal somewhat mingled with Ottawa a little bit but then you know there's the Toronto area and then west coast like the and now it's everybody's kind of connected from from your work on Manipride so yeah warm fuzzies there you go I yeah I I do like, wonder. Like we wouldn't know who Doug Potter is, you know, if it wasn't for Manitou Prov. Shout out to Doug Potter. <laughs> I do wonder, like, if if you're present or you're the past, like, who who, who the next present, next future is. Um, and, and as I mentioned, it's I haven't seen people improved. Uh, I haven't seen really that many young up and comers, and it's probably because of what I said. It's it's really hard to improve at a game if. Um, you're not getting the right feedback. And someone asked me on Twitter, like, what? I'm, I just started, I'm a new listener. I love Table for Two. Just started listening, like, this past August and started learning the game. You know, what, what do you think is the best uh, place uh, to improve? And for him to, to have success as a listener, you know, he's got to be at a local store, LGS, surround himself with people either of his level or a, a bit better and, and be able to learn from them or... Or if you're in an environment, if you're always playing in the same store, you're never learning from your mistake. I think that's why, for the most part in Magic, I haven't seen. It. I mean, it's I've seen it, but it it is rare to see someone come out of nowhere. Like Daniel Fournier, he's played since I started in Madden Deprived. He won the last MCQ. Where's where's this? Uh, where's the new stars? It's all these old guards crushing all these tournaments. Yeah, I mean, well, magic's a hard game to learn. Again, and you need, especially we're talking about the unconscious, right? You have to build that up, and that takes time. There's a reason a lot of the best players have been playing since almost the game started, right? In terms of pros, I'm a newcomer, and I'm like almost been around for 10 years now. Uh, you know, you look at the people who are like Hall of Fame eligible and from like future classes, and there's not that many names still who are, who are like going to be eligible after time, right? Uh, so it's it's a tough game to, to get into and it's hard to learn and I think the movement towards arena in some ways is going to make things harder 
in that like the way you got to be good before was you went to your LGS, you played, and you saw people who were better than you, and you watched them play, and you asked them questions, you learned from them. Now you can play against better people than you on Arena, but you don't like to ask the questions. There's no way of like, even Magic Online, you could, there was chats, you could potentially be like, hey, I love your deck, or hey, why did you make this play there, or something, you know. Usually it was, it was mostly used to slur people's mothers or whatever, but, right. like, but it could in theory be used for that. Arena, there's just with emotes, you don't really get to chat with your opponent. The way I think of the future to learn is to watch streams and to ask the streamers questions. Uh, but when someone's streaming, they're not playing their top level magic. Like, you know, you don't really realize how much of an effect it has on you until you actually start streaming. Even I was like, yeah, I'm sure they play worse, but how much worse? It's like a lot worse. Yeah. A lot, yeah. a lot worse. Because. I've seen these people, a lot of these people play, you know, when they're not streaming, and I know myself when I'm playing when I'm not streaming, and the, you know, the, the quality is just vastly different. There's just so many more things you have to do, and it's already a, a yeah. actually mental game. <laughs> I guess something I kind of want to touch on, there's an article I saw on, from ESPN that some people linked about, from chess, and like the, the Grandmaster Diet, they called it. Basically the fact that just even you're the stress and using your brain burns a huge amount of calories and that like yeah that was that like interesting it, fact. That it, like a grandmaster sitting down and playing chess for two hours just sitting down playing chess for two hours burned 560 calories which is like what Federer would would burn in one hour of singles tennis so you're only only twice as, as slow as that but just sitting down you're not even moving he's incredibly active right you see the players running around sweating jumping hitting those things it's crazy so you know, I've known that chess players would often lose large amounts of, of weight over tournaments, you know, and that it's a long draining thing. You know, the brain is a very taxing organ. Uh, but, well, like uh, I, I've experienced this too. Like often at magic tournaments, I'd go and I'd eat like crap, and I'd come back home and I would have lost a pound or something. I was, how did this happen? Well, the tournaments are incredibly taxing. Often I come home and I like sleep for like 13 hours or something too, and I think that. We basically, you know, chess has recently started to get into this at the top level that like physical fitness and making sure to have like how you eat around tournament time and stuff. Uh, the only thing I do about that is I mostly avoid caffeine prior to tournaments and then during the tournaments I, is, I can consume caffeine and so it does give me an extra boost. But I think I have had more success generally when I was in better physical condition than not for for events so obviously a small anecdotal evidence i've heard that from other people too but there are a lot of magic players who are not in particularly good physical condition whereas the top chess players all kind of look like soccer players really they're they're all pretty fit and i think that's something if magic becomes more and more of an esport is we might move towards that seeing some fitness regimens one of the key thing from that article that i learned was like it can't just be you sitting at home playing arena it has like part of the reason you lose so much is because of the stress and the increased heart rate of, of you being in a especially at the mythic championship level a high stakes uh, yeah. match you're not gonna lose that much playing with your friends at commander <laughs> game or chilling at fnm or something yeah. you know you're you're, you're re if you're relaxed and you're playing and you're having and like fun is the outcome right then you're not actually going to burn like that. But when stre there's stress and it's like there's a huge amount on the line and you really care. You're pulling your hair out. You're pulling your hair out. Your brain is going in overdrive. You're thinking through everything. You're making sure, you know, you do, figuring out exactly what to do. You're not going to make a mistake. That, that's an area where 
is where like it's gonna go crazy and I don't know, you know, not that many people necessarily experience that with with magic, but you know, maybe instead of hitting the treadmill, you could you could <laughs> grind grind some some tournaments. Grind I'm kidding. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. I don't know. It just has to be high stakes. <laughs> well, you lo losing weight is, happens. You burn a lot of calories, but it doesn't act. Physical fitness is more than that, right? It's also about right, right. cardiovascular fitness and muscle muscle mass and. Right, well, we'll wrap up the show with, I have one thought I wanted to say. Oh, back to your MTGO thing when you used to make friends with people, and, and that's how I met Yi Fan, the oh, quiet yeah, Asian Yifan. man. Yeah, your good, uh, good friend. The quiet that's Asian it. man. Yi Fan. <laughs> I, I, I that, was, that was pretty good. <laughs> I would have never met him through Arena. And so, and with him, we shared ideas. We went to Providence together, uh, rented the same, I guess it was an Airbnb. Um, that's not possible. And now you have to, like you said, do it through other means, like follow the same streamer and sort of maybe connect. And that's how I, I know, pe like some of the moderators in your chat, that's how I know them by name, just because, you know, we, we had this this common place uh, to meet and chat. And, and it's I a community. That's, yeah, that's the alternative now was just there's no right. there's nothing in arena again you gotta you know it's not just magic it's also the gathering and i think that's an important part of it and for me like magic has is not just is has been so incredible for me because it's been an outlet in so many different things it's been a, you know an analytical out, outlet and like you know you're thinking about a game it's been a creative outlet in terms of like brewing decks and it, it's been a social outlet in terms of interacting with people and like working together as a team or learning from other people and just palling around and I think you know something's lost when you whenever you take away any of those aspects so but I'm, I'm still fairly optimistic for Magic's future I do think that Moto Chat is often been pretty toxic the one funny story I heard is one like this guy like I think it was David Price or something is chatting with the opponent on Magic Online and you know, opponent says, "Hey, you could have done this play differently, and you would have like given yourself extra outs." And they, just, you know, takes it badly. Oh, this, da, da, da. You know, hey, if, if you need any help winning pro tours, just let me know. And his opponent's like, "Uh, uh that's funny, but uh, not necessary. Thanks." It's like, uh, "Who is this?" It's like, Kai Buddha. <laughs> so you get the fun things. I mean, I remember one point I played Moto back in the day. Somebody thought like I was John Finkel or something. You know, they're like, "Oh, it's secretly John Finkel." like no I was not John Finkel I was not anywhere close I was really bad but <laughs> good times you gotta, you gotta you know you gotta start somewhere and you gotta put in your hours you gotta practice and you gotta learn from people better than you I suggest you know bringing cookies or something <laughs> like if you're in Toronto area you know and, and you see you go to Terry Tarantula and there's Gabe Sang and David Rue there, and you should ask them what their favorite kind of cookie is. You know, maybe you can learn from the the old masters. <laughs> or if you're in Victoria, BC, John Stern now lives there. You know, the the grandfather of Canadian magic. You know, maybe I think I think at that age you have to be careful with with what st stuff getting stuck in people's teeth. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. All right, that's enough. But yeah, shout out, shout outs to all the Canadian superstars of past, present, and, and future. I don't know who I'm. Right. I'm looking forward to seeing who's the next generation. You know, Rich Hohen, of course, is who I really view as like the, before my generation was the Canadian superstar before me. All right, we'll we'll, we'll uh, catch you guys next time. Thanks for always tweeting at us with with your feedback. Uh, we love you and uh, parkour. We want more. Peace. Peace.